Welcome to the Job Shop Show, where we talk with the owners, suppliers, partners, and customers of custom manufacturers. Listen and learn the secrets of top-performing job shops, the tools, techniques, and backgrounds that have made them successful, all in the quest of raising the bar for custom manufacturing. I'm your host, Jay Jacobs. This episode is sponsored by Paperless Parts, connecting buyers and suppliers of custom manufactured parts. The Paperless Platform is a secure, ITAR-compliant, cloud-based manufacturing system for suppliers that reduces the amount of time spent on sales, estimating, quoting, administration, and order processing. It offers seamless integration with the accounting and ERP software tools that shops already use, such as QuickBooks, E2, and JobBoss. Paperless Parts was founded with a mission to make manufacturing more accessible by streamlining the quote-to-cash process. Spend less time quoting and more time selling. This episode is sponsored by our friends at the NTMA, the National Tooling and Machining Association. The NTMA is an association of privately held, entrepreneurial-based, and family-owned businesses, representing nearly 1,200 small to mid-sized machine shops and tool and die shops across the country. They have approximately 30 very active regional chapters that host local events, run apprenticeship programs, and provide other services to their regional members. As an association of peers, the goal of the NTMA is to help members of the U.S. precision custom manufacturing industry achieve profitable growth and business success in a global economy through networking, workforce development and training, technology, best practices education, advocacy, programs, and services with industry partners. To learn how your company can get involved with the NTMA, including how to join, visit ntma.org. Shazam! This is Jay Jacobs. Welcome to the Job Shop Show. Sometimes we forget what it was like to start our shop, the daily struggle to pay bills and doing seemingly everything yourself. Today's guest, Dan Donaworth of Dan's Custom Machining of Williamsburg, Ohio, is right in the middle of it. He started his own shop four years ago after working in various machining capacities at other companies. And I should say, he started his shop while still working at another company. And while he is definitely successful, he's still figuring it out. Although I guess you never really figure it out completely. You just keep adding the pieces as you go along. Anyways, recent win for him was appearing on the cover of Modern Machine Shop where he and his shop were profiled in detail by Peter Lazinski, and you can find a link on Dan's website. By the way, if you don't read Modern Machine Shop, I really encourage you to subscribe and glance through it every month. They do a super job on providing all the flavors of machining details to our community. Back to Dan. I'm looking forward to hearing the details of his journey, and amongst other things, the buying criteria for his house and his champion, who is committed to helping him succeed every day. Let's dive in. Welcome to the Job Shop Show, Dan. Thanks, Jay. I'm happy to be here. Happy to have you. One of the things that I am curious about, and what a wonderful opportunity, was that you got to travel around the world for extended periods of time for one of the companies you worked for on their behalf. What lessons did you learn? What resulted from those travels? And how has it helped you, if at all, in your own business? Oh, that's a good one. Probably the biggest thing that was an eye-opener, I got to work with various guys that worked in shops 
all over the world. So you kind of got to see how manufacturing was in other parts of the world. One of the biggest eye openers was when I worked in China, just seeing how manufacturing is conducted over there to here, which really makes you see why the prices are so much more competitive. What are some of the things you saw in China I mean, that are different? Just the safety aspect and you talk to people about pay wise and it's just a real eye opener. I mean, we were at a job site. I mean, literally your bathroom is a hole in the ground and that's, <laughs> that's just where you want to use the bathroom. There, there's no plumbing there. It was in a shipyard we were doing a field machining job on a turbine that was in a ship. When you say the safety aspects are different, how are they different? It, it wasn't like up close and personal. You could just tell walking through places like safety wasn't there, like zip ties on scaffolding when you're walking down the road. And zip ties on scaffolding? Scaffolding. That was where here you got. I mean, you, you just could see, you could visually just looking around, you could see where safety wasn't the utmost concern, which I think is one of the big leading costs of, a lot of manufacturing here in the United States is the safety measures that are implemented and along with keeping workers comfortable, satisfied. I mean, you were going to most shops, they got AC, they got running water, they got plumbing. You're not going to use the bathroom in the floor. Well, I remember when we retrofitted our facility, which wasn't a Taj Mahal, we had to put a visual smoke detector in there in case someone who was deaf was in the bathroom while the smoke alarm was going off. And that was, I think, $1,500 for each bathroom. And certainly it wasn't a hole in the ground. What other places did you travel to? I've been to Papua New Guinea, uh, Australia, South Korea, uh, Germany, France, and I believe that is every, uh, yeah, I think that's every, in China. What was your favorite? Australia by far. I, Why I is that? Everyone's just so friendly there. Uh, it was just a great place. Everyone was welcoming. Machining seems to be pretty big over there. Uh, skill trade wise in general is pretty big. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not, it's more looked up to than what it is in the United States. And that, that goes for also Germany. I mean, Germany was also really good about, it was more uh, looked up as a skilled laborer instead of you had to go to college. It was, you did your apprenticeship, you went and worked, and that was just as high level as going to college. Yeah, I hear such good things about the German trade schools, apprenticeship programs, the way that they develop their people and I hadn't thought of it in terms of the respect that manufacturing has over there, but that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. The Germans definitely do have probably the best. I used to work for a German owned company and they had a amazing apprenticeship here in the United States that was based off of how it was over in Germany. Hmm. And you couldn't ask for a better skill set because apprenticeship and machining is pretty much dead in the United States. Right. Unless it's implemented by a company. Right. So you are 28 years old now, and you started your shop when you were 24. When did you first get into machining, and how did that happen? I first got into machining when I was a junior in high school, so 16. 
after a lot of convincing from my mother to let me go to trade school because she was not on board. She always had the picture dream of me going to college and doing this and that. I actually started trade school. It was a month or two late into my junior year that she finally decided to let me go and they had a spot. Is that a separate school than a regular high school? And was this also in Ohio? Yeah, this was in Ohio. Uh, it was the part of the Great Oaks, which is, I, I went to an actual high school and then our last two years of high school, you can choose to go to a trade school. And it could be from, I chose machining, welding, but they also do everything from diesel mechanic to veterinary tech. To, and you spend your last two years of high school, you do your core classes, your math, science, and all that during the morning. And then your last half of the day you spend in the shop or whatever career you're choosing to study. Was that a physically separate trade school or was it part of and integrated no, it, into the regular high school? It was a... Uh, Great Oaks has its own campus, so you spent your whole entire last two years of high school. You did math and science and all that at the same location, but it was mm -hmm. separate from where I went for my previous two years. Sounds like a great opportunity for young folks to f find a path uh, right within the high school environment. So is that still in place? Is that still going strong? Oh, yeah. It's, it's an amazing program they have going on there, and it's... They got a lot of technology strapped into there, and a lot of the big corporations around the Cincinnati area have connections with hiring out of there. My junior year of high school, I actually worked for uh, one of the largest job shops in the Cincinnati area. So part of your high school trade school training was to internship in actual companies? Yes, if, if you reached uh, certain uh, requirements as far as grade level through your mass and core classes. And if your uh, shop teacher thought you were excelled enough to go out and work, you would actually get hired on. You would go through the whole interview process like you would mm -hmm. in a normal job and they would hire you. You got paid. I mean, I was a junior in high school making $12 an hour to work in a machine shop to mm -hmm. shadow someone. That's pretty good money. There probably aren't a lot of high school students who are listening, but perhaps the parents are. And what would you say to a parent whose child wants to pursue a trade school route? Oh, I would highly recommend them to just let their kid at least go check it out. I mean, it, skilled trades are such a dying thing in today's economy. I mean, I, I think the issue is, is if you didn't grow up around it or know people in it, you don't know the kind of money you can make. And what I mean, kind of money is that? My senior year of high school, I made, I think it was just shy of 40 grand that year. And I was making, by the time I was 23, I think I was almost at 100,000 a year. Say that again to our audience, because I think those numbers, you, you obviously, you must have created a lot of value for the company. I, I mean, that, working, that's not, yeah, that's overtime included. I was never one that was shy of working overtime. But this reminds me of a young man who went to the community college around us in Nashua, New Hampshire, and he graduated from the machining technology program. He came into our shop and he was just hungry to learn. And he started out in the mills. He learned the laves. He learned QC. He 
learn programming and he was just devouring knowledge shop knowledge and so if there is someone who is that curious and that hungry there is a path to significant earnings because we had to advance him to keep him and pay him to keep him and he was making significant dollars three years out of school yeah i mean i actually it was was worth it (laughs) (laughs) you know i actually I misspoke. My year I graduated, it was 36. I actually have a paper that I keep in my wallet. That's close enough, Dan. (laughs) (laughs) But it's a great career for any skilled trades. And Mm -hmm. I mean, the beauty of it is, is even if you want your kid to go to college, uh, every place I've worked at company-wise, if you were going to stay within the field as far as if I wanted to do engineering or whatnot they, they offer tuition remission so you could go to college for debt free and not spend your money that's an interesting approach which is because college is so expensive I, I like that as an alternative get some years under your belt prove your worth and let someone else then pay to fund your education when you graduated from high school did you have in mind that you were going to open your own shop someday because this took a while for you to actually open a shop or did that happen as you were working for other folks? I always kind of joked about the idea, I guess you would say. I I was always serious about it, but I never, I always thought with the cost of everything, it would not be obtainable very easily without going hundreds of thousands into debt to try to do it. Mm -hmm. But it, it was always something I thought would be cool to at least have some machines at my house, whether it turned into a full-blown business or not. I, I didn't know. I just knew so I always wanted to tinker. In the back of your mind, were you entrepreneurial as a child? I guess every neighbor of my parents always said I could sell ice to the Eskimos. <laughs> <laughs> they always said I was going to be a salesperson or an entrepreneur or a business owner when I was a little kid. Because I was always trying to mow yards or do work and earn money. Well, I think that's how it starts. So uh, any of the uh, parents out there who are not shop owners, entrepreneurs themselves, that's a good indication that your child may actually own their own business someday or go into sales. Part of your trajectory is you worked at a number of different companies before you ended up going full-time into your own shop. And some people might say, as the article by Peter said, that you job hopped a lot. But there seems to have been a a reason and a method to that madness. And can you explain why you moved from company to company so often? Uh, There's actually two reasons that come into play with why I jumped around. One of them was if I was working at a company and became bored as far as uh, it was just a monotony of going in, no challenge, uh, not enough new things to learn. Mm -hmm. It it wouldn't pique my interest. And I I just always wanted to learn more. I wanted to dive into programming right away. I I wanted to get into CNC. And then part of the other reason was I actually, for my first three years out of high school, I worked full-time in a machine shop and I went to college full-time. 
Oh. So I made whatever, uh, if I needed to work third shift at a place to make my college courses coming up the next year, if I wanted to play to where I could stay full time, mm-hmm. I would offer the company if I liked it there, hey, can I go to another shift? Which every place I worked usually let me change around shifts if mm-hmm. need be. But sometimes I went elsewhere, but mostly it was because I lost interest or wanted more of a challenge. I am thinking from a shop owner's perspective and I am thinking I have a Dan and he's really bright or she's really bright. How do I keep a Dan from losing interest in wanting to go to another shop because having your skills and then being a leader in bringing those skills to other folks within the shop would be so valuable. I wouldn't want to lose you. How do I keep a Dan from leaving? I'd say just if there's more challenging work there, uh, just try to feed them a little bit more to keep them always learning. I, I, I think some of your best machinists, that's what, when you work at certain places and you give them challenges all the time, if you're truly dedicated and love what you do in machining, you want to be challenged every day. You don't want to just come in, push a button, let a part run. Mm-hmm. You want that challenge. You want that knowledge. Were there shops that you thought there were technologies that they should bring in that you would want to champion that they just didn't want to, to make that move? Yes. Uh, I've worked at, especially one shop that that was probably the most irritating thing was the technology stuck in the ways of doing something an old way just because it worked and not willing to invest. That's actually why I left it, left that company the first time uh, was to go seek. I wanted to get into programming of CNC's and more stuff like that. And I actually ended up going back to that company when they bought a CNC HBM to go help run and program that. Hmm. You bought your house when you were fairly young. And can you tell the story of how you looked at buying a house? What was the biggest criteria when you were looking at properties? Yeah, my uh, when I was looking at a house, I was 21. And my realtor always laughed at me because... The first thing we would go do is if we pull into the driveway, I'd walk straight to the garage or straight to the whole building that was on there. And he's like, don't you want to check out the house? I said, after I see what the shop looks like, (laughs) because the shop or the garage didn't meet what I wanted. And it wasn't in my house search. I even looked at like zoning rules as far as what outbuildings I could build on the property and whatnot. So I didn't want to be stuck into a place. But you hadn't made the commitment to, having your own shop, but you knew you wanted to have some equipment and, and that was the, that was what was driving you, even at, at age 21. There is a debate when someone starts a company, whether you should just sort of burn the ships and go in full time from the get go, or whether you should try to make it happen in your off hours and generate some revenue, prove out the business concept. You chose the path of going 
part-time when you decided to actually make parts for other folks. Why did you choose that path as opposed to saying, I'm just going to buy a bunch of equipment, build out my garage and open up for business? The biggest reason is I'm more of a strategical risk person when it comes to what I do in life. From my own personal standpoint, I would never go take on massive amount of debt without knowing that I at least have something coming in or Mm -hmm. have a base already. I believe starting a business, you need a good base foundation to get started. And when you throw in the stress of having overwhelming debt on top of your shoulders, it, it's hard to focus on that base foundation because you're so worried about, let's just get stuff out the door so we can get a payment done. Worry about, I just feel like stuff would slip through the cracks a little more. How did you start bringing equipment into, it was a, was it a garage or a outbuilding? Was, or? Yeah, it's a, I, I had my uh, front barn, uh, I finished the inside and added three phase 480 electric into it. Mm-hmm. So I put a 400 amp service in there. And actually four years ago, two days ago was when I finally passed all my commercial inspections. And all I had machine wise when I started was a LeBlanc servo shift, manual lathe, a Bridgeport mill, and a dual saw. So with that equipment and the electrical work, when electrical work is not cheap, but you started out with some older equipment, manual equipment. How much were you all in at that point? 30,000 into the building, if not a little bit more. And how much did all the equipment cost you? I'm sure you were looking for bargains. Yes, I, I searched auctions. That's how I started off with all my stuff. And I actually, between those three pieces of equipment, I only had 6000 in it. So that's pretty reasonable for a investment without essentially bankrupting you or probably causing you not to sleep at night. I think it's interesting how you sort of generated your first work. If you can talk about that and talk about how you still had a day job or I guess it's a night job uh, at times while you were building out the business. Actually, uh, my first customer I had is actually kind of a funny one because they're also my first customer that taught me my first lesson in business (laughs) as far as uh, working on credit with people. It was actually a newer company that reached out to me to come work for them when they started it. Mm -hmm. And then when I started my shop, I reached out that if they had any work to farm out, that uh, I'd be willing to do work for them. So that, that was my first generate. They were a job shop for uh, tooling for aerospace and whatnot. So uh, that, that was my very first customer and how I gained them. And then from what there, did they teach you? They're no longer in business. It, it, they ended up, unfortunately, filing bankruptcy, but uh, I, I never did get paid for my last chunks of money. So I learned that 
uh, in a business just because you have an accounts payable and being a small guy, uh, you just got to chalk it up as a loss and write it off for that year. That's changed your behavior. And how do you look at receivables now so that won't happen again? If for doing work for smaller companies or companies that I don't know people in, it, it changes. I'll either do the first few jobs, cash payment on delivery or check mm-hmm. payment on delivery. Uh, and then I'll do terms, but uh, most of my customers now are fairly large corporations. So I'm stuck with doing 90 and a hundred day terms and 60 day terms. So, uh, but you're more aware, you're more wary than of the smaller companies who haven't been around for a while. Yes. The smaller companies. And I mean, just cause you're a larger company doesn't mean Sure. Nothing. I mean, the larger the company, usually the more late they are is typically how they get it. But, you, but sooner or later, you, you get, get paid. Yeah. 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 It reminds me of the early days at Rapid. And over the years, we had really, really low bad debt. We, we I think, managed our receivables very well. But in the beginning, I learned some lessons as well. And one of them was we had a smaller customer like that and they varied in their payment terms, but they were a significant portion of our business and they didn't pay us and they needed more parts and we got a little bit of money out of them and then we didn't get any more after delivering those parts and then they wanted more parts and instead of just saying, no, we're not gonna give you any more parts till you pay down what you owe us or at least a significant chunk, we sort of felt like, oh, we don't want to have them go elsewhere, lose the business. And what, sure, what happened? We, we made more parts for them. We never got paid another cent. So, and that happened in another flavor as well. The accounts receivable management, particularly for a small business, is so important. And we're always worried about getting the jobs out because that that's what seems to matter the most. But and then we don't give the attention to the receivables perhaps until the weekend or the night. And by then you can't contact anybody and, and it's not in our wheelhouse anyways, but it's so important to make sure you get paid for the work you do. Glad you brought exactly. that up. Yeah. Can you share a little bit though, how you, when you opened up your business four years ago, you were working at GE, I believe and how you structured starting your business around that job? The way I started is uh, I was, of course, a low man on the totem pole starting there. So I was, mm-hmm. I, I got the option to choose third shift to work. So working third shift was awesome for as far as running a business, having time. Uh, mm-hmm. For me personally, third shift is easy to run on no sleep because when you're not at work, it's daylight out so you can stay up. So I would work and get off. I would come home. I'd work in the shop from seven until roughly four o'clock, sometimes later. And then I'd sleep and then I'd get back up and go into work. I'd sleep for a few hours. Mm -hmm. Rinse and repeat. Yep. Rinse and repeat. And then uh, because I wanted to invest so much into back into the company and I wanted to keep, like I said, I wanted to start off, at this point, when I worked at GE, the first year or so, I had no debt 
and the, everything was cash paid. Uh, I didn't take out loans for anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if I wasn't generating enough revenue in the shop, but yet I saw potential to uh, expand or it would benefit me business wise, I would just sign up for overtime at work, work overtime there, and then just suffer the consequences of less sleep at home. But it, it was a, it was either that or going to debt at the point. So another good point you're making, Dan, is that debt is a great tool, but you want to use it correctly and at the right times, and not let debt control you or make you make decisions that you don't want to or shouldn't. And I'm hearing that you were very intentional in not going into debt before it was appropriate. Yeah, I think it was, uh, I guess it was a little after a year being in business when I first bought my first new machine. And even then I didn't, I, I really just dipped my toes in the water and just, just got something that would open the doors up to where I could go full CNC programmable uh, and whatnot, but it wasn't everything I wanted, but it was enough to get, let's, let's dive in and take this little bit of a step and see how it goes. Did you hundred percent finance that or did you put some money down? Uh, 20% we had to put down. It was, and actually it was a Haas machine because as I have mentioned to quite a few people, uh, buying a machine tool is a very, hard thing to do for someone as far as who will finance banks don't want to give you a loan uh, just due to being a new business. So Haas was really my only option as far as they're the only ones I know that will finance a brand new startup as long as you do 20% down and you're stuck at the horrible interest rate and (laughs) it's a four year repayment. But it kills me because I can go out. I've always had amazing credit since I've been 18. Mm -hmm. I can go out and buy a $80,000 truck and not even blink twice and not put any money down. And it's no issue, but you got to buy a machine tool that's going to make money. It is odd, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. Did you have a business plan when you started? You write up anything formally? No, I did not. It, It was more of fly by your seat type thing. I knew what I wanted to do as far as work-wise is job shop and really focus on tooling and fixtures and product development, but I didn't really have a roadmap per se. If you had to do it over again, would you create one or something similar? I don't think I would because you'll start down this path and then do 100% 90 and go back the other way mm-hmm. because you realize this isn't the right thing, but we need to go here. And me personally, I think trying to sit down and make yourself follow a roadmap or feel like you have to, it would be very distracting because you feel like you almost have to follow it. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about your champion and someone who helps you every day. Remember why you, you started your shop and particularly when you were working the two jobs and that's your, your wife, Chelsea. And can you just talk about what, what she does for you and how important it is to have your significant other be supportive like that and what they can do to 
help you be successful things that she's doing. Yeah, definitely. Uh, to touch on the first thing, as far as how important it is for your significant other to be on board in the four years I've done this, if, if you're married or in a relationship with someone and they're not on board with it, either the business isn't going to last or the relationship isn't going to last because it takes that much time out of your life. I mean, a business consumes all of your time when you first get started, whether it be them reminding you why you're doing something, because I think every business owner can agree that just because you love what you do, you have those days that kick you down and you just like, why am I putting myself through all this turmoil just to hopefully get to the end? Because I mean, there's no guarantee for anyone that your business is going to succeed. You're doing it out of hopes and dreams and determination. So her constantly reminding me on days where I've only slept for an hour and a half or two hours and making sure I get up because she knows I need to and knows that it's my dream and we're both in it together. It's not just me. She always is good at reminding me and that no matter what, I'll find a way I always do to try to relax and mm-hmm. or bringing dinner out to the shop and eating dinner out there and then going back into the house. Yeah, because particularly again, when you were, when you had a, full-time job and you were starting your shop she probably didn't see a lot of you no because we worked two opposite work shift schedules so <laughs> when, when I worked at night she was just getting back from work and when I was in the shop during the day she was at work well it's great that you found someone so supportive and I don't think that that can be overstated that it really is so helpful to to someone who is building a business and that's one type of relationship. You also have said that relationships matter in terms of business as well. And that was important in how you have built your business and how you started. Could you just talk about what you mean by relationships matter? Just uh, working relationships. I mean, the relationships with the engineers or the buyers at companies. I feel like if you're personable with people and they feel like they can connect or talk to you about a project or trust you more than someone else. You, you stand a upper leg when it comes to getting work. One instance of why relationships are so important. I do work for one customer and I, I get a lot of these one types of prototypes. And I've even been told that our shop is not the cheapest shop, mm-hmm. but the quality and the dependability is what sets it back. And then being able to communicate and, just the personal aspect, I think, is what wins me a lot of the work from them. You have to spend a lot of time on machines, but you talk about communication. How do you manage, because relationships is a lot about communication, how do you manage that? How do you make sure that you're making the time to communicate and keep those relationships at the level you want them to be? For the most part, I always answer emails back or get quotes back or answer questions Pretty rapidly, if I'm stuck on a machine, I'll use my cell phone to write an email back. Still to this day, all my customers I do work for are local to me within Mm -hmm. 45 minutes, 50 minutes. I still deliver all my parts to every customer. And if the engineer's there, has a free time, I always talk with them, see what's going on, what projects are coming up, Ah. uh, any feedback of how I can improve 
How I has always, that changed in COVID times? At first, it was different. Uh, as far as sitting there and talking, it's not more or less anymore. It's all done over the phone. It's more mm-hmm. here's the part. But I still, they know I hand deliver everything. Mm-hmm. They know they don't have to wait or worry about lost shipments. Everything's always delivered without damage. Mm-hmm. But the, definitely the... In person, it just depends on the company's policy. If the engineer wants to talk, I'll let them know that I'm coming at this time and they'll come outside and we can. I think this is a great little nugget because it reminds me the first year at Rapid that I would personally deliver parts to a lot of my customers as well. And in particular, I always delivered parts to our largest customer, one we had inherited from the shop we bought and that's how you get business that's how you forge the relationships is even if it's just a hello at the dock or a wave or things like that that does make a difference yes it definitely does especially in today's generation and world that we're in where everything's so digital (laughs) i feel like if you can make that one personal connection in person it makes you stand out from just a guy that's going to sit there and email Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't want to say it's deliberate, but I'll say that people hide behind email. I used to get so upset if I saw an email chain back and forth, this is huge email chain. I'd say, just pick up the phone and call the person, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> let's, just, let's get this resolved. <laughs> that's, that's actually, uh, it happened to me today with something like that. It was just an email back and forth and I just, picked up the phone. I'm like, I'm not going to keep going back and forth. Right. Right. Because I I mean, especially me, I don't have time to sit there and do a little bit words here and then get a little bit words back and just a little phone call communication. Mm -hmm. When I was quoting, I wanted to make sure I got back to the customer exactly what they wanted quoted. And sometimes I probably was a pest, but I was in the middle of a quote and I would call up, ask a question and then if I didn't understand something, I forgot to anticipate this. I'd call them back. And sometimes I'd even call them a third time or a fourth time because I wanted to, to make sure I got exactly what they needed and not waste their time with back and forth to adjust the quote once it went out to them. And yes, I think I probably was a pain, but I think at the same time, they appreciated that attention to detail and willingness to try and do a good job for them. As a small shop, you don't have the time probably to learn some of the different tools to manage the shop as well as there's a cost to them. So what sort of tools do you use to quote, keep track of jobs, schedule jobs, and invoice and pay bills? Just tell us the tool set you have besides actually the machine tools that are making the parts. I I run my whole business through uh, QuickBooks. And mm-hmm. what I use for all my expense tracking and uh, customer base and what invoices are still out and mm-hmm. quotes are out, quotes that have been rejected. Uh, the only thing that really is a pain is I use the calendar on my phone to keep track of when jobs are due because that software, that's the only thing it lacks is you can't schedule a due date mm-hmm. once you create an accepted uh, accepted estimate. Do you use the desktop or the online version? The online. Makes a lot of sense. 
So you're four years in now. What surprised you that you didn't anticipate? The biggest surprise as far as like stuff for the business, I always thought the machine was going to be my biggest expense. Hmm. And that's by far not the case, which really shocked me. Where do you see the other expenses? I'm thinking of someone who's thinking of starting a machine shop, going out on their own, open their eyes. Well, I guess uh, it, it would be all dependent on what kind of industry you want to serve, but doing a lot of tight tolerance, uh, fixture work and stuff for aerospace. I mean, all your measuring equipment, uh, your tool holders. I, I try to stay top. I mean, I, you could get by with, I'm sure cheaper than what I, I use all big plus holders in my new machine. I got all heat shrink, hydraulic, uh, multiple holders to make jobs more efficient. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, gauge pins. Uh, <laughs> luckily, I bought gauge or dial, uh, gauge pins. I bought, luckily, I bought quite a few of them at auction. But when you're in a bind and you need a set, you don't want to buy just one to check tight mm-hmm. tolerance holes. Uh, if you price out new gauge pins, you're going to spend over six grand just for a full minus setup to one inch. And when you're mm-hmm. doing a job shop, you don't know what's going to come in the door tomorrow or right. a week down the road. Mm-hmm. And same with tools. I keep cutting tools. I, I have a massive inventory of cutting tools so I can keep fast turn times. I mean, I, I can get jobs that require end mills as small as 20 thousandths diameter. And I have MLs that are 20 thousandths in diameter that can even reach almost three quarters of an inch deep. How many dollars do you think you have invested in tooling right now? Like that? Uh, counting cutting tools and holders. Cut, cutting tools and holders, yeah. I'd say I'm probably close to 50, 60,000. Significant. Oh, yeah. What other aspects? Any other things that surprised you? How hard it is to get into companies to do work for Hmm. that, uh, especially your larger corporations, they just have such a big wall put up of, we already have our purchasing lines set up. We don't need to look at anyone else. We don't care what you can offer. We we don't want to talk to you. I I can honestly say since I've started business four years ago, I I first tried to do cold calling or emails even. Mm -hmm. Uh, I never once had any good luck with, it was always like, oh, he, they're busy. They don't want to talk or no, thank you. Don't come back. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one place I actually tried to get in to talk to, uh, I actually ended up getting introduced by a machine tool dealer to someone there. And it was no problem then, but trying to go on my own, I didn't get anywhere. How do you generate new customers now? What's your strategy? It's mostly word of mouth is how everyone that I've created either between word of mouth. I have a really good relationship with my machine tool dealer as far as he's helped me get into a few places mm-hmm. as far as introducing me at going to their open houses. He'll, he knows how hard it is. So he'll bring me over to talk to some guys that work at the company and we'll network at their open house or whatever event they're having open houses. So I haven't heard that often on podcasts, but, and again, it's COVID that's changed. You would attend open houses then that were sponsored 
by your machine tool dealer and you went deliberately to meet prospective customers? Yes, I, I, I try to go to every event as far as even whether it be Haas open house or Reynolds Machinery's open house or hmm. any tool trade show that's local or unfortunately IMTS didn't happen. That was right. I've picked up a customer at IMTS back in 2018 that I met through a booth. Networking face-to-face in an environment like that, I feel like you stand a better chance of sparking someone's interest. How did the article for Modern Machine Shop come about? That came about because one of my college professors tagged me in uh, Pete's post on LinkedIn about wanting to do a story about someone under 30 in manufacturing. Hmm. And that story, I don't, the story he ended up doing on me was not the story that that was intended for. My story sparked an interest and something that he wanted to write about. So that was through LinkedIn that that whole connection became about. Yeah, that was a fantastic story too. Great profile of you in your shop. Have you gained any customers from that? Uh, no, not directly. I, I haven't gained. I've had some people reach out from other states that I've replied back to emails asking like what kind of work I do and if I would be interested. And I reply back and it's kind of a dead end from there. Either it gets lost in someone's inbox or overlooked, I would assume. Mm-hmm. So you're staying local. Yep. Staying, staying local for now, which uh, I was pretty slow there for a while when all this first happened, but uh, I'm busier than I was last year this time. So that's great. Yeah. I'll still, I'll still end the year. It's looking like with growth over what last year produced. So great. And we're recording this in the beginning of Q4 of 2020 for a reference point for folks. At this point, Dan, what keeps you up at night? What are your biggest worries? The biggest things that keep me up at night, I would say how I'm going to find new customers as far as now the biggest thing that keeps me up is I, I really want to find a more repetitive job, I guess you would say, to fill in some of the, because I do all job shop work. So mm-hmm. something that would help me grow a little bit more by hiring possibly someone in. Is that something you're considering? Eventually, uh, once I could get the work lined up, I would not mind adding an employee to help out, especially so I can help keep the personal relations with all my customers. And I would still have someone back at the shop that could keep things going machine wise. So a production type job, is that the biggest pain point for you? the barrier to growth right now? I would say that's probably the number one barrier as far as the steady, once again, going back to playing it safe, I would never hire someone unless I hit a certain number of money in the bank and revenue coming in per month because Mm -hmm. I I feel like as a small business owner, I I would take too much pride in hiring someone to where I would not want to hire someone and then six months later be like, uh, we can't keep you employed. Right. It, it would, that would be devastating to me. That's, personally. that's a lot of responsibility. If we project out say five years, what 
would have to be true for you to feel successful? What has to have happened? As far as me feeling successful, uh, if I could grow to where I could add a little bit of additive manufacturing to my shop and a five axis machine, I would feel successful in my journey as far as I would be able to live comfortably and be my own boss and run a company. I don't feel like me personally, I need to be the 50 employee shop to feel successful. I mean, being able to wake up and be in control of your own destiny and choose what technologies I want to advance in and do is a success in my eyes. It's like I tell everyone when you're asking about success, if I can't find an hour to go grab lunch with a friend or go talk to someone, then I'm not in control of my life. And that's not what wealth is about. Wealth is about being able to control your time and be able yeah. to do the things in life you enjoy, not be glued to something nonstop. Well, I think this would be a great point to end because I really like that you understand what success is for you and you have a path that you are marching along that's one that you are creating for yourself so congratulations for making it this far for surviving the covid slowdown earlier in the year you certainly had a wicked curveball thrown at you and thanks for sharing the story of your journey with us i appreciate we didn't use the term mindsets, but many of the things that you spoke about are mindsets that you have, and they hopefully will resonate and help guide others who are looking to become shop owners. Did we leave anything out that you want to add? No, I believe you covered it all. Well, I think you're the one who covered it. I just was <laughs> giving you some questions to, to guide you forward. Where can people reach you? Uh, I can be reached either on my cell phone at 513-490-0046 mm-hmm. or they can email me at daniel at danscustommachining.com and they can also check out our website www.danscustommachining.com. Awesome. Awesome. This was really fun, Dan, because it brought back many memories that I had sort of forgotten about in the early days at Rapid. And in particular, sometimes we forget it's not a smooth path. So I'm rooting for you. I'm rooting for all the other shop owners who are starting out or who have the dream of starting out. I am extremely bullish on American manufacturing, and I think you have started the shop at a great time. There will be so much more demand coming at us over the next decades, and you are well-positioned to be a valuable contributor to American manufacturing. So again, thank you. Congratulations on that success and look forward to reading more about your journey at some point in the future. Thanks, Jay. I appreciate it. So folks, until next time, keep those spindles turning, those lasers cutting. Have a super day. Thank you.